If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today, you'll hear an interview with the historian, author and broadcaster Sam Willis about the Battle of Trafalgar. Sam has written a new book on the naval clash and he met our editor, Rob Attar, in Exeter to discuss how significant Nelson's victory in 1805 really was. Sam, could we talk a little bit first about the background to Trafalgar? Why was it that these two fleets came up against each other in October 1805? Um, Well, Napoleon had been a menace for some time. And he had an incredibly powerful fleet because he was then allied with Spain. Uh, He'd also been threatening to invade for a long time before October of 1805. Um, Napoleon actually changed his mind and he decided not to invade. So one of the things about the Battle of Trafalgar is it didn't actually um, save Britain from invasion at all. His army was already being sent overland from northern France all the way to Italy um, to protect his new kingdom. Uh, He'd just been crowned King of Italy in Milan. Um, And the British wanted to maintain their own security. And so Napoleon's enormous battle fleet, combined with the Spanish, even though it wasn't threatening to invade, was still a massive threat to British territory overseas and to British trade. And that's where the British got their money from. It kind of goes around in a circle, because that's where they got the money from to pay for the war. (laughs) So it would be quite good if they just didn't fight, then they wouldn't need the money to pay for the war. But it helped the economy grow. Um, and so that's the, the rough background of what was going on. And for some years now, Napoleon had been at war with Britain and various other partners. And at this point, is it now the third coalition that's fighting? So yes, this is the third coalition against France. The other two had failed abysmally and they managed to gather together enough people to to fight against Napoleon. And it was in October 1805 that they decided to make their first move. This is the first move of the third coalition and they threatened Napoleon's new kingdom of Italy. What are the two sides hoping to achieve for the battle and, and for whom does it matter more? It's a question that I think not enough people ask about naval battle. What were they actually trying to achieve? Well, the French, um, one way of looking at it is that Villeneuve, the French commander, was fighting for his honour and fighting for his own professional reputation. It's important to realise that Napoleon hated his navy. 
He had no respect for his navy. He only had eyes for winning wars on land. He never really understood how navies work, and he certainly never had any faith or understanding of how things went wrong and when they went wrong. He wasn't prepared to listen. So just before the battle, he was uh, he, he had already signed the papers to replace the French Admiral Villeneuve with another man. Villeneuve knew this, and he also knew that Nelson was just over the horizon with a big, big fleet. And so for him personally, he was fighting for his own honour to stand up, I think, for the reputation of the French Navy, which he loved and he'd served all of his life. More broadly, the French and the Spanish were fighting. I mean, what they wanted to do was to destroy the English, destroy the Royal Navy. That was, that was the purpose of what they were doing, but no other reason. And the, uh, the British were doing exactly the same thing. They were fighting to, at this stage, to rid the seas of the enemy. If your seas don't have enemy fleets in, then your trade is safe. You can launch um, amphibious operations all around the world. It's really important to realise that, you know, you've got the East Indies, you've got the West Indies, you've got all sorts of different aspects, and they're completely unattached to France unless you've got a navy. If you don't have a navy, you cannot protect those interests. So it's fundamental to the lifeblood of European powers at this moment. And so, you know, both of them were fighting for their lives. And you mentioned Villeneuve, it's obviously a very pivotal figure in the battle, but the person, I suppose, in Britain who's by far the most associated with Trafalgar is Nelson. Prior to 1805, how important a figure was he in the Royal Navy and why is it him who's leading the British fleet? Um, Nelson was, in 1805, the most important, famous person that had ever served in the Royal Navy. I think you can put it that way. Even pre-Trafalgar. Even pre-Trafalgar. There'd been a lot of other famous people. Um, Hawke in the 1750s, Rodney in the 1780s, Drake, of course, going all back, the way back to the Tudor period. But no one had a reputation like Nelson, a sustained reputation over a long period of time. Uh, and he was the best choice. I think he was re- realistically the only choice to command this fleet at this crucial moment. So he'd become famous, um, particularly at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent in 1797, fighting the Spanish. Um, he then won, he wasn't in charge of that battle. He, 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 was, he was fighting under John Jarvis, the Earl of St. Vincent. But he was in charge at the Battle of the Nile in 1798 when he annihilated the French invasion fleet. Um, this is Napoleon's fleet, which had been gathered for the invasion of Egypt and Nelson caught them at anchor um, in Abu Ghir Bay in the Nile in 1798. That was his first major victory in which he was fully in command, even though he'd been so famous before for what he'd managed to achieve in 1797 at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. Since then, had the Battle of Copenhagen in 1801, and then on to 1805. So there, there, were, there, there were no other choices like Nelson. He was definitely the right man for the job. And then coming on to the wider fleet, what kind of people were serving on the, on the two sides, and to what extent was their participation always voluntary? You've got to be quite careful talking about how fleets were manned in the 18th century. So on the one hand, you have a lot of volunteers. You've got a lot of people who join the Navy because they want a career in the Navy. One of the great things about the Navy is that you can make a career from nothing. It's very different from the Army where you have to... If you want to be an officer, you've got to buy a commission. Don't do that in the Royal Navy. You can 
it takes you a long time, but you can gain a reputation for competence and you can be promoted and you can make a real life in the Navy from nothing. So on the one hand, you've, this is the Royal Navy, on the one hand, you've got uh, a lot of people who are maybe, I mean, we're, we're talking in my house in Devon. There were, there were lots of local Devon sailors, people who lived by the sea, were brought up on fishing boats and they went and joined the Navy. They got paid, they got fed, and they had a chance of making a fortune. On the other hand, you the, the scale of the problem is so enormous. If you think there were 17,000 British sailors at the Battle of Trafalgar, and a proportion of them were manned by people who'd been recruited via the press gang. And that was a way in which the Navy managed to recruit people against their will to make sure that their numbers were, were what they needed to be. The French Navy's um, different, and it's, it's quite muddled. Um, so 1805... It's 12, 13 years since the French Revolution. Now, the French Revolution messed everything up because all of the skilled officers left because they were all aristocrats or they were murdered. Now, they were replaced by people who were, on the one hand, skilled because they were sort of good salt-of-the-sea trained fishermen, lifelong uh, maybe naval men, but they didn't have the officer training that the aristocrats had. So that was a real problem in 1794 at the glorious 1st of June. By 1805, they're a decade on, so they've kind of recovered from that blip. But there's still a marked competence issue in the French Navy and certainly in the Spanish Navy. Spanish Navy, uh, they've got beautiful ships, but they just simply don't have enough men. Um, They never had enough men in this time, to, to operate a navy effectively, you needed to have an, a shed load of money to pay for the ships and pay for the dockyard, and you also needed to have an, an efficient recruitment system. The British had both, and the French had they were okay with men, didn't have brilliant ships. Spanish had brilliant ships, no men. <laughs> so everyone's got a slightly different version of the, of, of the same problem. And you alluded just there to the scale of the number of people, certainly on the British side. And something that was interesting in your book is you compare aspects of the Battle of Trafalgar to the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah. So how big a battle are we talking about here? Or maybe people think that a naval battle is nothing like the scale of a big land battle, but that's not the case, is it? Not at all. I mean, the scale of it is, is, is difficult to kind of get your head around, but put it this way, the total firepower of both armies at the Battle of Waterloo, which was fought 10 years later, amounted to just 7.3% of the firepower at Trafalgar. You know, if you just take one of those ships like HMS Victory, three-decker, she's got a hundred guns. And there were even more powerful ships than her in the French and the Spanish navies. And what what were conditions have been like aboard one of these ships prior to the battle? Again, it's a really difficult question to answer because the sort of the implication of it is that you're comparing it with something. So what were conditions like in the Royal Navy in 1805, to answer that properly, you, need, you do need to compare it. Say, well, what were they like in comparison to the Royal Navy 50 years before? They would have been a bit better. What were they like, you know, in comparison to the Royal Navy 100 years before? They would have been a lot better. What were they like, you know, in comparison on land? Well, um, at least in the naval ship, you get guaranteed food and you're looked after and you get clothes and you can wash um, there are, you know, there are some good things about it, but if you're sitting here in your comfy seat 
in your, you know, listening on a comfy sofa, looking out of your fancy window. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty rough. <laughs> you had, you know, something like 10 inches to sling your hammock. Uh, it's not much. Um, there's, there's, there are decent toilet facilities, you know, on, on board the ships. Not fantastic, bearing in mind you've got maybe seven or 800 men on board. If you're an officer, the conditions are better. You've probably got access to a window. Access to light's a really interesting thing. So if you think about HMS Victory, Nelson's famous flagship, in Portsmouth, it's got this huge window at the stern. Now, that window gave fresh air and light to officers, primarily officers living quarters. If you were a um, one of the, a first lieutenant, second lieutenant, you might have your own window, you might have your own porthole. But then as you go down through the ranks and you literally physically go down through the ship and you end up with less and less light until you're right at the bottom, the all-up deck, where there's no light. <laughs> you know, all light is artificial. There's no fresh light. There's no fresh air. So I'd say the things you've got to bear in mind are noisy. 800 people in any condition make a huge amount of noise. Um, the ship also creaks. So all wooden ships, ships creak. They're, they're constantly in motion. So you've got the water slapping against the hull. You've got the stamp of people moving around. You've got the hull itself will creak. You've got water dripping. You've got the wind. Wind makes canvas snap and crack. If you've ever been on a yacht, you'll know how noisy yachts are. But imagine that, but multiply it by 50-fold to get the kind of noise of what's going on here. So I'd say noisy, damp. Um, you can't be on a wooden ship and not be damp. Stuffy, hot if you're in the West, West Indies or somewhere like that. If you're um, off the coast of Cadiz in October, um, probably quite mild and brisk, I would say. You're probably hungry all the time, that even though you are fed. Um, and I'm not sure you'd be tired because you'd have been used to a routine of watches. If you're brought up on a watch system on a ship, whatever it might be, four hours on, four hours off, four hours on, six hours off, four hours on, two hours off, your body gets used to it. Your, your rhythm, your body clock changes. So I don't think they'd have been miserable. I think they'd have been excited. A, a lot of sailors in this period were bored most of the time. So you have these big battles, but just think about different, you know, the, the previous one before the, the previous big battle before Trafalgar was Copenhagen in 1801. It was four years before. So you'd have to be, and that was with a completely different fleet. So you've actually got to be very lucky or unlucky, however you look at it, to go into a battle. Most of the time, you're not fighting anyone and you're probably mending the rigging, scrubbing the decks, painting the hull, bit of training here and there. Not much happens. <laughs> So bore, boredom, I think, is the, the main problem. So the British in the battle were outnumbered in terms of ships, but did they hold any advantages prior to the start of the battle? The main, the two main advantages. The first is that the men were better trained than the French and the Spanish. They were better seamen. Uh, they were better trained at, well, so there are two ways of looking at that. They, they are better seamen in that they're better at sailing their ships and they're better at repairing their ships Um if it's damaged, well, it doesn't matter how that damage is caused. It's just in principle, if the ship is damaged, you need to replace a sail, you need to mend a hole in the hull, whatever it might be, you need to splice and rig. British are better at it than the French or the Spanish, but they're also better at being fighting seamen. 
They're better at fighting. They're trained to fight. This is a generalisation, bear with me, but they have had spent more time training to fight than the French or the Spanish. Those are two fundamental differences which have a massive, massive implication on what happens next. Um, the ships are different. I mean, the ships, primarily the British ships, again, this is a generalisation, um, but primarily the British ships are short, squat, and very, very strong. The French ships, by contrast, they most of them have been built for a different type of warfare. They've been built to be fast, swift, the hulls are lighter, there's more sail. So you think about the strategy of the two. The French are trying to protect their trade and to sail fast along the trade routes. British have a fleet that was designed to blockade French ports. And that means sitting and waiting in horrific weather off the coast of France for the enemy to come out and then to fight them. So um, when it comes to fleet battle, the British do have an advantage in that more of their ships are designed for it than their enemies. And so... Prior to the battle, what was the British plan and how far did the battle go to that plan? It's really interesting, actually. Um, just ask yourself the simple question, who was in command at the Battle of Trafalgar? Nelson. No. He died an hour into the battle. The battle was very long. It, it lasts for hours. And the person who's in charge is Collingwood. Because Nelson's dead. It's a really, really important point, and I don't think anyone notices that. So all of the pre-preparation, that's great, but, you know, there's the big, big question, you know, all plans are great until someone smacks you in the face. In this respect, you know, all plans are good until your commander gets murdered. Having said that, Nelson had a very specific plan. The Allied French and Spanish fleet was much bigger than the British, so he decided to cut it into three pieces, and he did that by dividing his fleet into two columns. And they attacked the rear third and the centre of the enemy fleet. So essentially, you're turning... Imagine it's a snake, right? You chop the head off and you chop its legs off. That's basically what happened. They left the head to sail off. And they would turn around at some point, but the British used their two columns to attack the main body and the tail of, of the enemy. Now, that went to plan. The cutting went to plan. The actual fighting didn't go as well to plan as as many people suspect. Actually, got some quotes here, which which might might help. Here we are. This is a quote from Thomas Fremantle, captain of the Neptune. He said, "On this, as on all occasions of the sort, meaning battles, many have, in my opinion, behaved improperly. Had all gone into action with the determination that Nelson did, it's probable that few only could have escaped." The frigate commander Henry Backwood saw the faults, or rather mistakes, on both sides. Captain Edward Codrington of the Orion declared it was all well done, errors accepted. And then William Pringle Green, master's mate of the Conqueror, was certain that if the officers had done their duty in every ship, the action would have been over sooner and the whole of the enemy taken or destroyed. So there's a really interesting point there. Nelson gave a famous signal, England expects every man to do his duty. And that didn't happen. It fundamentally didn't happen. Everyone thinks it did, but it didn't. That was not uncommon in naval battle at the time. After pretty much every single naval battle of the Age of Sail, there was a court-martial, 
and uh, people are fired. Sometimes they're killed. Um, and it usually goes right up to the top. These aren't just sailors not doing their duty. They're, they're captains of ships not doing their duty. So that definitely happened in Trafalgar. So you've got people not doing what was expected of them in the battle, even though the actual attack was exactly how Nelson had planned it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Trafalgar was fought in 1805. Napoleon was not beaten for a decade. A, a ten more years of war. Ten! This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Of course, you mentioned that Nelson himself was killed fairly fairly early on in the battle. So how did that come about? And do we think this was a deliberate kind of assassination of Nelson or was it just sort of caught in the heat of battle? don't know. It's difficult to say. We, we know um, that soon after the victory broke through the French line, it's a much smaller ship than HMS Victory, the Redoutable. It was a 74-gunner, so this is a ship armed on two decks. Came alongside and the decks were massed with soldiers and sailors ready to board HMS Victory. It was actually a really dangerous moment in the battle when it could have gone gone slightly differently. It's at this point that a French marksman in the mizzenmast of their French ship, something like 15 or 16 metres up in the air, it's a really, really long way up, fired a musket at Nelson. That much is true. Muskets were not rifled at the time. Smoothbore gun, very difficult to be accurate, but it doesn't mean he wasn't trying to shoot him. We know that Nelson was on deck. He wasn't wearing his parade costume, he was he, parade outfit. He was wearing replicas of his medals. He didn't want to actually lose his medals. He couldn't do that. But um, it, was, it would have been clear, I mean, who this guy was. He was... Everyone knew the victory. That was the flagship. Everyone had heard about the small... I mean, it was a very distinctive small man with one arm and an eye patch. You can't really miss him. <laughs> so um, he was shot through the shoulder, bullet burst a lung, broke his back. I think he was deliberately targeted. 
It doesn't mean the shot was easy, though. There would have been a great deal of smoke, so much that you wouldn't have been able to see your hands in front of your face. But that doesn't mean that the smoke didn't suddenly clear, revealing Nelson at the moment. I suspect that's what happened. I think there were clouds of smoke. I think the ships were rolling around. I think it was complete chaos. But I reckon that just in one little brief minute, the clouds cleared, and there was this French marksman, weirdly, with a ball in the musket, ready to go. He didn't miss fire. He managed to get the shot away, and it hit him. What was the nature, then, of battle, naval battle at this point? What was it? What would it have been like as an ordinary sailor to be participating in Trafalgar? I don't think you'd have very much of an idea of what's going on. You'd, you'd have a... If you were manning the guns on the gun deck, you'd have a very strict job to do. You probably only had one or two jobs to do, and they'd be really easy. Not easy, but I mean, they, they would be very simple. You're going to pull on this rope. You are going to put the cartridge here, whatever it might be. You're going to run from the uh, from where they keep all of the powder up to the guns, and you're going to distribute it. So everyone had a single or two very simple, repeatable jobs. And I reckon people just did the job and repeated it and did the job and repeated it and did the job and repeated it for hours and hours and hours. And I suspect they didn't give much thought to their safety. I think the real problem was at the beginning of the battle, the anticipation, um, particularly at Trafalgar. So usually you have two battle fleets and they sail side by side and fire into each other. What happened at Trafalgar is that Nelson's fleet attacked at right angles to the French and the Spanish fleet. That meant that the British couldn't fire back because there are no guns in the front of your ship. So for the first 20 minutes or so of the battle, the British are receiving fire from the French and the Spanish and they can't fire back. They're literally lying down trying and praying not to be killed. There's nothing to do. 20 minutes of just lying there thinking that the next one's going to hit you. I think that was difficult. But then when the fighting started, you're off and away. Um, There are some examples of of, horrific carnage and people firing carronades, short, very powerful guns full of musket balls, which would have torn everything apart. I mean, that happened occasionally, but it wasn't repeatedly again and again and again and again. Um, So if you survive the opening salvo of an enemy ship, unloading all of its guns at you, then you've got a pretty good good chance of, of pulling through. But you'd probably be mentally scarred by it for the rest of your life. So, of course, we know that Britain triumphed at Trafalgar in the end. What do you see as the key reasons for that happening? Nelson's tactic worked. He divided the French and the Spanish fleet into two. The van, meaning the head of the French fleet, did not turn around and help the centre and the tail. This meant that the numbers were more even. Now, now the numbers are even, that meant that the British superiority in gunnery and seamanship could begin to tell, and that's exactly what happened. So even though there are some examples of outstanding French and Spanish courage, good seamanship and good uh, good fighting, more British ships fought better for longer than the French and the Spanish. So it's a bit of an endurance competition. Um, and that's that's exactly what happened. That's That's why the result was what it was. And once it started to go wrong for the French and the Spanish, they couldn't recover. The British were able to recover. So if things went wrong, like a a mast snapped or a yard snapped, they could get it repaired. They could keep fighting. They could keep going. They did what was necessary. And this all became very clear after the battle when there was a horrendous storm. And the British sailors were as exhausted as the French and the Spanish, but they kept sailing their ships. The French and the Spanish generally... You know, sat around in a sort of shocked stupor. 
but it was the ability to keep going in the worst of conditions British sailors from the French and the Spanish. And that at heart is why, why the British won. So as you mentioned earlier, Nelson dies fairly early on in the battle and actually Collingwood is, is, is in charge for most of the battle. So how much of it was really Nelson's victory? Should we actually have Collingwood's column? Definitely. Square. <laughs> I mean, it's it's difficult. I'm 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 a big fan of Collingwood. Um, he joined the navy when he was eleven. He was a very old friend of Nelson, long trusted friend, and he was a diplomatic genius. He wasn't as naturally gifted at all as Nelson. Uh, in his, you know, Nelson had the opportunity that Collingwood never really had, but um, he was good enough to see everyone through what was the biggest naval battle that had ever happened. I mean, the, you can't get away from the fact that Nelson died so early on in the battle. So what happened for the remaining hours? Well, Collingwood was in charge. Yeah, and I th- he deserves so much more respect than he gets when everyone's focused on this person who died right at the start. It's like the people who actually won the battle have been forgotten and the person who died early on is the one who's remembered. Um, one of the key things that Collingwood did, this is really interesting, so right at the end of the battle... There are thousands of French and Spanish prisoners, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of them. The French have got no chance um, because th- there's no way that the war is suddenly going to end. But the Spanish are different. You remember that the Spanish, they, they have a Bourbon monarch and the French revolutionaries used to have one, but they'd killed their Bourbon monarch. And at the moment, they're attacking um, another country, you know, in Europe with more Bourbon monarchs. So there's a reason to, to, to shift their allegiance. And what Collingwood does is he lets all of the Spanish prisoners go. He writes a letter and he lets them all go. And it was instrumental in the Spanish changing sides in 1808. And that changed the war. The loyalty that, and the who the Spanish fought for in this whole period, changes everything again and again and again. It's often seen as a war between Britain and France. But, you know, Copenhagen, we were fighting the Danes. Battle of Cape St. Vincent, we're fighting the Spanish. And Trafalgar, the French and the Spanish. And what happens to the Spanish and how and why they shift their allegiance is the key to understanding the shape of the war between 1794 and 1815. And in this instance, it's all to do with... Collingwood's politeness to the defeated Spanish admirals, him allowing the Spanish prisoners to go free. So why then do you think Nelson gets all the plaudits? Is it just because of his heroic death and his, I guess, his reputation prior to then? He died a heroic death, but I don't think he died any more of a heroic death than thousands of British sailors and and I mean tens of famous other admirals or generals who'd fought in naval battles or land wars. Um, it's a really important point to, to remember. I mean, it's a difficult one. It's also worth remembering that Nelson's famous because Nelson wanted himself to be famous. People often think of Nelson as, as a man that sort of history happens to, weirdly, and that he deserved his fame. And people forget that he had agency in it. He was fundamentally responsible for his own reputation. And he was obsessed with his own reputation as well. So after the Battle of Cape St. Vincent in 1797, he does this very famous thing. He, he captures two Spanish ships, one after the other, like a bridge. So he, he goes from his ship onto another Spanish ship, and then from that Spanish ship onto another Spanish ship. And no one had done this before. And he was so worried that no one would know what he'd done that he wrote his own dispatches describing what he'd done and made certain that that account of the battle got to London before the Admiral in Charge's account. 
Now, he does this a lot, and he also, he trash-talks his friends, well, not even his friends, his rivals a lot, and he makes sure that he's the one that comes up on top and not them. A lot of his contemporaries loathed him. He was an um, exceptionally difficult person, but he made certain that his sailors under him loved him, and he made certain that enough of the captains he worked with also loved him to make sure that his plan happened. So it's all very well having a plan, but you've got to make sure that it happens. And I think Collingwood is primarily responsible as well, uh, and I think in a good way, for for the way that Trafalgar is remembered now, because his famous dispatch written after the battle, the first line is not about victory over the French. It's not about numbers of, of who won, how many dead, how many ships were captured. He simply mourns the loss of Horatio Nelson. And he's mourning the loss of a friend his very, you know, he had a re- really good relationship, and a lot of the sailors were mourning that loss as well. I mean, he was Nelson was exceptionally famous. He was undoubtedly hugely courageous, and he he had one arm which he'd lost in 1797. He had one eye, um, and he wore those scars and mutilations as medals, which is why everyone loved him. He was tiny as well. Um, you know, he didn't he didn't look like a warrior, but. He had he had the heart of a warrior. It reminds me of Queen Elizabeth's speech in the Armada. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the legacy of Trafalgar. It's clearly one of the world's most famous naval battles, but how actually important was it in the war against the French? Well, very specifically in the war against France. I mean, this is the something that if you pick away at the edges, it becomes really, really interesting and very complicated. I think two fundamental facts stand out for me. Trafalgar was fought in 1805. Napoleon was not beaten for a decade. A, a ten more years of war. Ten! You know, that's longer than the First World War. <laughs> it's longer than the Second World, World War. combined, was, yeah. yeah. Ten more years of fighting. And even in the immediate aftermath, that's interesting. Um, okay, so there was a big enemy fleet of combined French and Spanish ships that fought at Trafalgar, but there was another entire fleet in Brest and another entire fleet in Rochefort um, who didn't fight. Not only that, Napoleon's got oodles of money and he controls Antwerp, which is a serious problem. Because all of his invasion plans have been to do with invading Britain from the south and the west, from around Brest, the Brest Peninsula. Uh, It's very, 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 very difficult to do, but it's much easier to do it from the east. Um, And so he then embarks on an enormous new shipbuilding programme, builds new ports, builds a massive new fleet, and he bases them in Antwerp. It's a terrifying prospect for the British. So so the fear of Napoleon invading, the fear of actually being attacked by Napoleon, increases after Trafalgar. Because you can't rely on geography protecting you from, from a fleet coming up from Brest. At the same time, Napoleon is rampant. So just shortly after Trafalgar, Napoleon wins what's known by many as the greatest of all of his military victories at the Battle of Austerlitz. He captures an entire Austrian army led by the Holy Roman Emperor and the Tsar of Russia. Um, He also seizes Vienna, which is the first time the city's fallen in its entire history. And as a result of that, the Holy Roman Empire, which was founded by Charlemagne a millennium earlier, ceases to exist. So you've got him in more control of Europe than has ever been before. He's still got fleets at his disposal, and he shifts his focus of his shipbuilding and naval strategy uh, to the east of Britain, all of which is a massive problem. However, it's more of a kind of a slow death. What actually happens, what, what he doesn't do in the immediate 
aftermath. He hasn't got enough ships to launch a big amphibious operation. The only people who do are the British. Now, that's hugely important because it suddenly makes British colonies all over the world safe from being interfered with by France. And that means we can focus more on what's going on in Europe. At the same time, it means British trade is safer. There are still French ships causing a lot of trouble all over the world, but they are safer. And that guarantees the money which comes in, which pays for the Navy, it pays for the Army, and it pays for subsidies uh, for Britain to pay her allies in Europe. It's all to do with money. It's all to do with money. But um, by no means is the is the aftermath, the impact of Trafalgar immediate, nor is it what, what most people suspect. Okay, one, one last question on this. There was a big debate, which you may remember, about whether William Britton should either celebrate or commemorate Trafalgar. What's your view on that? I don't think anyone should ever celebrate a war or a battle. Yeah, that's... I mean, you can't. I mean, the idea of celebrating death and misery and wasted money is um, abhorrent to me. It's a complete open and shut case. It's interesting. I mean, and also one of the things about Trafalgar is it's kind of reputation in history. And a few years ago, when historians started to unpick what was going on, they found out that there were lots of captains who weren't doing what they were supposed to. I remember giving a few lectures and people came up to me afterwards and said, well, people don't want to hear that. I was really shocked. It's it's history. Of course they do. You know, or maybe they don't. And I suddenly got really panicky that people just want to be told the sort of the same thing about Nelson being heroic and 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 captains all doing their duty and his band of brothers. And it's it's so much more complicated than that. And I think so much more fascinating. That was Sam Willis. Sam's book on the Battle of Trafalgar is available now, published by Michael Joseph. You can also read Sam's cover feature on Trafalgar in the August issue of BBC History magazine, Out Now. Sam will also be speaking at our History Weekends in October and November of this year. For more from Sam, including details of his History of the Unexpected podcast and live tour, head to historiesoftheunexpected.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Prashant Kadambi will be discussing the extraordinary story of the first Indian cricket team to tour Great Britain. 